is Killer Innovations, a show about ideas, creativity, and how you can innovate. Welcome to the Innovator's Garage, where you learn to create your next game-changing killer innovation. Hello, I'm Phil McKinney, and welcome to this week's Killer Innovations. This, uh, this week, we're broadcasting from Washington, D.C. I'm on the road yet once again. Here at Killer Innovations, we're all about focusing on innovation, creativity, and design. If you listened to last week's show, last week's show was with Kim McNichols talking about Sir Richard Branson's tech challenge and the top 25 companies that have been selected. Um, so that was a little bit of a variation from our normal show where we talk we're sync with leading innovators talking about their products, their ideas, and ultimately the, uh, the companies that they've started. So this week, I'm up here in Virginia. I'm here on, uh, for a number of meetings, but I'm also spending uh, this evening with uh, Jeff White, who is the founder and CEO for Gravy. We'll talk about that here in a second. Jeff got introduced to me by one of the listeners of this show. So this is also a plug and a reminder that if you know of an in innovators that have got really interesting stories about how they did their startup, drop me a note. It's real simple. You can just send it to Phil at KillInnovations.com. Love to hear about it. Um, and we can put those, uh, those, those innovators on and share their stories and share also their frustrations of how do you go from that kind of spark that uh, ultimately then results in that idea. So got that plug in. Let's move on to really the core of the show of, with Jeff White and Gravy. So Jeff, first of all, thanks for having me up here at your office. It's been a while since I've been up here in lovely... Leesburg, Virginia. It's a little bit of a drive from D.C., but it's also a beautiful country up here. So, uh, Welcome back. We're glad to have you back. <laughs> so, hey, Jeff, you know, you've, you're a serial entrepreneur. You've been in the, in, in the Northern Virginia tech scene for quite some time. You had, what, was it a Blue Canopy before? Was that was it, one of my first companies. That was one of your first companies. Right. That's, how I, that's, that's where I made the original. <laughs> when your name was given to me, I go, I know that name yeah. from someplace. <laughs> Uh, but now you've got this company, Gravy. So why don't you just take a few minutes, introduce yourself to the audience, a little bit about yourself, and maybe just a little bit of background on uh, Gravy, and then we can kind of jump in, because I've got a whole set of questions here for you. Sure, sure. So just real quick introduction on myself. Uh, to your point, uh, as you stated, I started Blue Canopy, my first company, in 2001, which was probably... It was right after 9-11, probably the absolute worst time to start a company. You know, that's, also, that's also a good point, though, because there's always these rules about, you know, never start a company in a recession, right? Yeah, right. You know how many companies started in a recession that became highly successful? <laughs> Walt Disney, Hewlett Packard, uh -huh. uh, Microsoft started in a recession. So, hey, starting in bad times is not always a bad thing. Uh, amen. Well, I tell you, it's... Um, Logic has no place for an entrepreneur. <laughs> if it did, no one would start a business because the odds are against you. Um, but in this case, yeah, it was right after 9-11, started that company. And to make a long story short, we um, fastest growing company in America, two week awards, fastest um, company. Our lowest growth rate year was like 100%. And um, sold it in 2007 uh, to a private equity firm. Started then my next company called GovWin in 2008 and sold it at the end of 2009 and then started Gravy in 2011. So this is my third in a run here. One of these days I'll get it right. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to come back and talk about what was different between those. Because part of my my proposition for a lot of uh, innovators is, is it's not always about the idea, but timing has a yes. pretty critical role. So let's talk a little bit about Gravy, though, first. 
Sure. So gravy was really started on the hypothesis that, and this is going to sound like a patently obvious statement now, um, I promise you in 2011 it wasn't, but just that mobile was going to change the world. <laughs> and, and, and fundamentally, people look at our mobile phones now and think they've been around forever, but I think the iTunes store just recently celebrated its sixth birthday. And Google was a couple of years younger than that. They haven't been around that long. Yeah, well, I always remind people I was podcasting because we're in the 11th season now for this show. And I was podcasting before iTunes, which was uh, pretty, yeah. pretty, yeah, it was the pretty, dark ages, right? Yeah, it, was, it, was, <laughs> it, was, it was, it was definitely the dark ages. <laughs> so, um, 2011, people were just starting, I think, to massively, you started to see these movements. But in particular, what we thought was that on the back of mobile was location data. That was just going to change everything about the way consumers interacted with their world and the way the world and businesses interacted with them. So I wasn't sure where it was going to take us, but I knew I wanted to be there. I knew that was going to be a big space. And if I was remotely successful, even dummies like me can ride big waves into shore. Um, so we wanted to be there and just started trying to think about what was the big really dislocation in terms of data that could be persisted around location data on the back of a mobile device. So that was the hypothesis. That was it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, but what was the spark? Was there just, you just say, Hey, mobile's it, or was it using some of the early devices and saying kind of a, what if was there, was there kind of that aha moment somewhere in that? Well, I'm still waiting for the aha moment. Um, <laughs> So one of my favorite books that I that I've ever read was Blue Ocean Strategy. Okay. Um, yep. And, know that and, well. And we, always looking for what is the blue ocean that is going to surround these big movements. So when I looked at what a lot of the larger players were doing around mobile and location data, Google, Facebook, Twitter, Yahoo, then AOL, um, no one was really capturing what we called events, right? So we thought that. There was a lot of persistence around places and stores and locations. And we said, but no one was ever really on a scalable level capturing events. Um, what do you mean by events? What's yeah, the definition of an event? Yeah, so for us, an event by abstraction is everything from the largest things that you could imagine, the NFL games, NBA games, Taylor Swift's concerts, but even everything all the way down to the Little League swim meet at the YMCA and the puppet show at the library. We wanted to capture everything in between. And what we thought is that that was the hardest piece of location data that there was, that the larger players weren't really coming after it and doing it effectively, that if we could be a platform that every night pulled in and captured all of those activities that were going on, that that would be the blue ocean for us. That was a place that no one else was swimming in right right then. Okay, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you the challenge here, so, so what? So, you bring all this data in, yeah. so what? Well, again, this goes back to the hypothesis. So the hypothesis that we formed then is we weren't quite sure where this would go, but the entry strategy for us is if we could harness all of that data, capture it, make it discoverable, put a ton of metadata around it, that we could build a consumer application that would allow discovery of that. The the demise of the newspapers for the going out guides and discovery of what's going on around you at any given moment in time, we thought was an interesting space in that if we could harness it, persist it, put it into a platform, consumer applications, largely the ones that we were building, could create local discovery that hadn't been done that we had seen before.
Yeah, because now nowadays you would think of it. I'm going to do local discovery. I've got a whole bunch of, you know, local apps to say. You know, well, Facebook now even has it saying, you know, so and so's near you, or they're going to go to the same event. You both yeah. have confirmed to go right. to the Taylor Swift concert, right? Type of thing. So yeah. now you kind of get it as kind of the norm, what you think is the normal thing. So this is 2011. Yes. So you were actually building apps then that people downloaded on their iOS devices or their Android devices? You still can. You, there are still, our apps are still in the marketplace. We use them as test beds, but uh, absolutely, you can understand uh, down to a very fine grain level what's going on around you. And really, our biggest differentiator we thought on the discovery space is if we can understand the metadata about those events, understand our consumers, we could create serendipitous intersections that otherwise would not have existed. If you're an auto enthusiast, it's easy to go search for auto shows. But if I know something about you, so we took a page out of Songza and created mood-based discovery. You tell us the kind of mood you're in, we're going to surface interesting and relevant discoveries and experiences based upon those moods. Really? So you could say like, hey, I'm into, I just want to kind of mellow out tonight. Yeah. You know, and then you tell me like what's going on in the in the area that I can go to that if I'm looking for mellowing out. If you're with the fraternity brothers and want to go out and get crazy, we can understand those kinds of discovery modes. Or if you're with the kids and that, or you're with the wife and trying to find an interesting art exhibit. Those based of moods, we would be able to surface things that you would otherwise never think to search for. Oh wow! Yeah, actually, I'm aware that. For, for for guys like me who struggle with trying to be creative on date night, yeah, right? That could have been, that could, yeah, yeah. That, that could be a lifesaver for yeah, me. You're absolutely I, I never right. get, I never get the date night thing right for some reason. I think it's interesting, and my wife looks at me like I've got a hole in the middle of my forehead. Like, what the heck are you? Well, and thinking? if we did our job right, you wouldn't have to think at all. We would all actually just bring you the things that you and your wife would most love. Yeah, in fact, that we both could identify what we're yeah. love. So they actually, this is. This is interesting. So stay right there. We're gonna, When we come back, we're going to pick up because that's kind of the early story for Gravy. Indeed. Now we want to talk a little bit about, you know, the transition. Well, I shouldn't say transition, but the changes that Gravy has gone through to where you are today, which I think yeah. is important because a lot of innovators, we get hung up on loving our idea yeah. to the point where we'll hug it and kill it to death. <laughs> so stay right there. We're going to be right back after this commercial break. If you want to get connected. Text us at 33444, send the word innovate at 33444, and we'll respond to that. We'll be right back in a few minutes. This is Phil McKinney on Killer Innovations. Biz Talk Radio. This is Killer Innovations, a show about ideas, creativity, and how you can innovate. Welcome to the Innovator's Garage, where you learn to create your next game-changing killer innovation. Welcome back to Killer Innovations. I'm your host, Phil McKinney. We're going to pick up where we left off in the first segment with Jeff White here at Gravy. Now, Jeff, in the first segment, you were sharing... Uh, kind of the history of the consumer product side of the work that you were doing um, on Gravy. So give us a little, maybe a little bit of play-by-play -play of what did you find out with that effort, and has that caused you to think anything differently about the opportunity? I think it had us think about everything differently about the opportunity. 
And I think two things that we looked at it from the lens of one is internally into our team's DNA and then two, the opportunity that this represented. What we realized was two things. One, what we had built, um, someone once asked me an interesting question for an entrepreneur is if your business was burning down tomorrow, what would be one thing that you would save? And when, when that question was posed to me, the one thing that, that I would tell you, I would say was the data. Because we had consumers, we had engagement, we had meaningful um, growth. But to me, the data was always what sparked everything, right? I knew everything that was going on at a very local level, and no one else did. You know, Facebook could have a billion consumers, but I had data uh, that no one else had. And the second thing is we looked at it as a team, and when me and my entire team came out of big B2B businesses that knew how to build large, scalable systems, so those two things started making us early on put stones in our shoe of we're really setting on something here much bigger than what would otherwise be a consumer application. Yeah, and, and I, think it's, I think it's an interesting point, right? Because sometimes you know we get kind of hung up on the idea and the, the path we're on, but that question is actually a great question of if the building's burning, what do you save? Right. So how? So what was the transition? Was there a transition? Are you now as gravy in a different positioning than what it was when it started? Totally. So fast forward to today, and I, and to spare you all the the machinations along the way, but today gravy geofences still we do we take all the interesting events and discoveries, we still capture all the metadata, but somewhere along the way somebody asks us, can you tell us who's there? Right? Because if I understand who's going to these types of things, I know more about them than I did before. So we now, fast forward to today, geofence every single event that occurs throughout the U.S. every night. Um, we have about 10 to 15 million points of interest um, that we do the same. And all the associated metadata about those cases and capture for our customers attendances to those places and events. The best way to think about it is it's a physical real world cookie. So just like the cookie does in online and understanding our engagements with websites, we simply understand the same engagement on the consumer side for the physical world. So would you then, would the comparison be that this is kind of the fact that you've got presence in a physical location? So it's kind of a check-in, but really based on presence. That's right. Right. right exactly right. Um, and if we do our job right, the same information that allowed us to create an interesting consumer discovery allows us to understand the types of people, the types of things that make them click. Um, who are the types of people who are gonna be going to this type of event, this type of thing, um, and create win-wins both for the consumer and for our customers who license our data. So, okay, so let's talk about customers. Now, what do they do with this data? So, okay, you've collected the data, you've geofenced an event, mm -hmm. now you've collected the data, which includes then I'm assuming the consumer has to kind of opt in to say, yes, you can track me to this event or you can identify me in this event. So a couple of things. So one is we don't, so we don't necessarily track users, right? So mm -hmm. we're actually just creating, just like in a web cookie does, it's a geofence that understands the metadata about that and knows that a consumer was there and then wipe away the rest of the information. Mm -hmm. So we don't collect PII, we don't store location data, we're not breadcrumbing any users. But a good use case might be a large retailer who wants to sell um, yoga apparel to their users um, that go to yoga studios you know, three times a week or in their running shoes to those that run marathons. The creation of win-wins are when you as a consumer get products and services that are more tailored to your interests and things that you're truly passionate about. 
And the retailer creates a greater experience and higher conversion rates because they're able to sell the right products to the right consumer. Okay, so but how do they make the connection since you don't have private information? I've checked into a yoga studio, so right. how, what's what's that connection between the fact that I went to a yoga studio and how do I get the ad done? Totally. So in our case, we're working off our customers' first-party data. So um, large retailer X. Uh, our technology is probably embedded into their mobile ecosystem somewhere so that they're able to make that connection on their end. Um, and normally they're done on an aggregated basis. So give me all the yoga enthusiasts, right? And then our data just helps them parse and filter those yoga enthusiasts out. Okay. So they do it on their end. On our end, all we see are hashed identifiers. We never know who they are or anything else. Right. Okay. So then they make, they actually make, they connect the dots on their end. Right. And then they know, okay, you're, you've, um, uh, you're going to a yoga studio. Right. You're, you're a member of a VIP club at some sports apparel place. Yeah. They make the connection. You're a customer of me, but you also go to yoga studio. So therefore I'm going to yeah. push an ad to you. Right. Perfect. They were already going to serve you an ad. Now they just get the right ad to the right consumer. Right, right. Yeah. Just allows for better targeting, right? Yeah, exactly. Rather than you getting these bogus ads that are like, okay, let's see. My wife and I aren't having kids. We do have grandkids, but we're not in that market <laughs> right. for whatever it is you're pushing for me right yeah. now kind of a thing. Interesting. So how do the events get into your data model, right? How do you find, you know, do, do event organizers work with you guys or do you self-identify events just because you see a group of people coming together yeah so th this is really our what i'll call our core technology and the way i describe it think of it like a train station we have trains that go out every single night and these trains pull in all of this data and these and there would not be a single way that you could think of that i would say no to it's screen scraping every newspaper site across the country whoa it's, integration with every third party and first party ticketing provider. So like Eventbrite and all those guys all those you're pulling meetups, up. Um, yep. Every one of those. Um, Facebook and Twitter. So we take social feeds that are otherwise denormalized and normalize those to create events and persist that content. We have UGC, uh, people submitting directly to us. Our partnership with Gannett. So all of the 100 markets that they're in, people are putting on events. All that information comes directly to us. Those trains go out every night. We bring them all back in, process them all, and then you know, publish those into our platform. Holy smokes. Yeah. So you basically reverse engineering a social life, the social activities that they participate in. Well, for us, it's the context of the real world, right? So whose customers are going there are up to them, but um, we know what's going on. Right. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So. Here, we're going to take another quick commercial break here. But, Jeff, when we come back, you've been a serial entrepreneur, you know, gravy's number three. What I'd like for you to do is think about maybe what are the kind of lessons learned, both the, the lessons mm. from pain mm. and the lessons of success mm. that you can give the listeners on if they've got kind of that starting of an idea. Awesome. What should they be um, thinking about? Sure. To kind of help learn from you so we don't all repeat the same problems, <laughs> right? We've all yeah. we've run into these issues. Yeah. So if, you, if you're up to that, we'll do that when we get back from the commercial break. Great. Right. So, perfect. So stay right where you're at. If you want to get connected, text us at 33444. Text the word innovate, and uh, we'll get you connected. We'll be right back. I'm Phil McKinney, and this is Killer Innovations on the BizTalk Radio Network. BizTalk Radio. 
This is Killer Innovations, a show about ideas, creativity, and how you can innovate. Welcome to the Innovator's Garage, where you learn to create your next game-changing killer innovation. So we're going to continue on this segment with Jeff White. We're going to talk about really the, those top two or three ideas that entrepreneurs really need to think about, given uh, Jeff's experience. Now, you're a three-time um, entrepreneur. You've had both kind of the successes and the failures of, uh, of having uh, both the frustrations. I don't know if it's frustrations, really, but it's about starting with an idea and having to do those pivots. You've also had some very successful sales and, and, and successes on uh, achieving the goal. So if you had to give like kind of just a handful of ideas or guidance to the entrepreneurs, what would those be? Uh, well, if I had a, a magic book, I would love to bring it out, but I don't. Um, every mistake that could have ever been made, I've made. But I would say this, I would think the central theme that I would always apply would be vision. And, and we were even talking earlier, I think vision can be blinding. And as an entrepreneur, um, visions are a unifying thing, right? You have an idea, you have a concept, you have a business you want to do, but um, that vision can be blinding. So the first thing we always said was, have an idea, but don't be so blinded by it that you don't um, ignore the environment. Um, you know, even for us, in every business I've ever started, it never looked in the end, like it, we intended to do when we started. <laughs> um, so that was always a first, right? But had the vision becomes the way in which you make decisions. It becomes a Pareto um, for you, but don't let it blind you is, is the first one. So in, in this case, um, when you think about vision though, how do you define that? I mean, you know, there's, there's you know, probably 10,000 business books on the shelf all about, you know, vision. But when you think, when you think about vision as kind of the, I guess, but kind of your, 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 your North compass, your, right. your, your guiding light kind of a thing that, right. that you kind of can point the entire team to. Am I getting that right? Is yeah, that kind yeah, of how you think so. about it? I think that's right. I think for us, we even take Grazy as an example. The vision was mobile data location, but everything beyond that was open, right? That was the frontier by which we wanted to go and conquer. Um, where it led us, we weren't quite sure, but that became our north compass, right? That was where we wanted to go. But it, you know, my second thing was, is never confuse a clear vision with a short distance. And while we always had a vision of where we wanted to be, we never were so bold to think that we were ever close. Um, so everything that happened along the way made us better, and we weren't so emboldened to think that we had it all figured out. We learned, and we learned quickly, and we failed fast, right? Well, I think there's a couple, then now you've snuck in a couple of other ones, right? <laughs> it's not just vision, right? But it is about learnings, right? And recognizing that visions are never perfect, yes, right? You know, nothing in the future is ever perfect, right. but that also the ability and being open to learning is probably, you know, one of those other ones that a lot of people don't, don't latch on to. Well, and, and I've also, like you, I mean, I'm an investor and I, I look at companies that I like to partner with myself. And, and I always look at the entrepreneur and says, can he make the tough decisions? And sometimes it is to admit that they're wrong. And that's usually the hardest thing to say, right? Mm -hmm. and, and you got 
so many people looking at you that you're the leader, you got the rudder of the ship, and you know all things. <laughs> but it's okay to be vulnerable, and you don't, right? <laughs> yeah, there's actually, you know, and I teach a workshop called um, the Innovation Boot Camp, and one of the first slides I show up is is kind of getting rid of the myth of innovation. So mm -hmm. one of the key myths, myth number five actually is, is assuming the boss knows more than you. <laughs> right. Right? And it's, it is the case, right? Just be, and it, what's interesting is everybody just actually assumes that you've got the CEO title. I've got a CEO title. You know, where I'm at, you're yeah. CEO, right? Is that everybody just has a natural assumption that the CEO has either a higher IQ or whatever. It's like, uh, not always the case. <laughs> right. You know, it could have been timing. It could have been, you know, the ability to see a spark, but may not be, you know, you know, you're not, you're not able to execute. You got to have teams that are much smarter than you to take yeah. that spark and turn it into something real, those kinds of things. Well, I've, and actually, frankly, in ways of the team dynamics, I'm actually not comfortable with that title. Right, because I do believe that we're all better when it's a collaborative mm -hmm. environment and we all learn from each other. Mm -hmm. And and the hardest thing that I have found to do is create vulnerability to teams that they can actually be willing to lean forward and fail. It's okay, right? No one's going to crucify you for failure. The only times you get in trouble is when you don't stretch. You know, failure is an interesting thing because it is the common problem. I, you know, look at HP, forty-seven thousand engineers, right, <laughs> trying to get you know. You know, and you can accept, a, you know, failure. People should be willing to try. I'm now, I've got 210 people in my yeah. current company, right? Just trying to get them to get comfortable with failure. Because people have this thing of, if I fail, I'm, I'm less capable. I'm, uh, it's going to impact my career. Right. I'm not going to be, as, you know, it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. It's actually the opposite. Yes. Because those that are willing to try, and, let's, and face it, if you try it and it fails, you may have to pick up the pieces and work a little bit harder to get past it and recover from it. But the fact that you tried is huge brownie points yes. for me. Well, absolutely. And I, we always call around here rubber band. Rubber bands have the energy when they're stretched. That's when potential turns into kinetic oh, wow. energy. I'm, I'm going to steal that, by the way. Well, that's fine. And, but, but like all organizations, there are some who are on the back of the rubber band holding it back. There are some who are stretching it. Both can be equally disruptive. But until we're actually stretched to a limit that creates energy, it's, it's, you're not growing. That's right, yeah. and, it, and it, well, yeah, you're just sitting there, you're, you're, you're kind of huddled down, um, you're really not trying to you know, push yes. for that next thing. Because yeah. guess what? Your competitors are, are probably not pushing as hard either, right? Or they may <laughs> be pushing really hard and you're falling behind, yeah. right? Yeah, well, we always like to think that well, no matter what idea that you've just created, there are 10 people right behind you that have the exact same idea and mm -hmm. are right on your heels. Right. So run like you stole it. Right. Well, it's like the, and I don't know if you see this with entrepreneurs that come in and pitch for investments or whatever, right? The first thing they want you to do is sign a non-disclosure and they talk about the patents. I'm like, by the time the patent gets issued, <laughs> the marketplace is going to be so far past yeah, this. Exactly. You know, your, your competitive advantage is not your patents. Your competitive advantage is execution. Yes. And how fast can you execute? That's exactly right. And if you're relying upon patent to protect you know, your your marketplace, you're done. You're done. Yeah, yeah you're going to be spending all your time and all your money yeah. paying lawyers to do your, your patent work. Patents are important. So, hey, Jeff, one, I want to thank you for taking this time My out on a, on, a, on a Sunday to join us. So if people want to follow what you're up to, what's the best place they can find you? Well, you can find us at corp.findgravy.com. Um, you can follow me. I'm a big believer of LinkedIn. And I'm also a big believer in helping others. So others that might have needs or questions, if I can help, I'm, I love to do so. Hey, Jeff, really appreciate it. So I'll have all those links up on the show notes over at killerinnovations.com. So step on over and check out the, the show notes, and we'll have the link so you can uh, 
find out more about Jeff and what uh, what Gravy is up to. Stay right where you're at. When we come back from this commercial break, we've got a new killer question for this week. And it's going to be an interesting one because it's going to focus on the role of price in innovation. <laughs> and we all tend to think price is either not important or, or not as important. But in this case, we're going to talk specifically about price and how its role uh, is in, in innovation. Again, if you want to get connected with Killer Innovations, you can text the word INNOVATE to 33444. If you're outside the U.S., go to KillerInnovations.com slash INNOVATE. You can sign up there. Well, I'll go ahead and actually send you the uh, two-hour audio course to you automatically. You'll get that, and uh, it'll help get you uh, started down the path on uh, what we all talk about here on the show. And uh, with that, do uh, greatly appreciate uh, Jeff again taking the time. Um, I'm gonna be. I'm gonna go out and check out the uh, the gravy app now here uh, tonight and get that loaded onto my phones. So again, stay tuned. We'll be right back from this commercial break. We need to pay a few bills here, and when we come back, we'll have this week's killer questions. I'm Phil McKinney, and you're listening to Killer Innovations on the Biz Talk Radio Network. Talk Radio. This is Killer Innovations, a show about ideas, creativity, and how you can innovate. Welcome to the Innovator's Garage, where you learn to create your next game-changing killer innovation. So get ready to exercise your creative muscles. So what is this week's killer question? Well, this question today, we're going to deal with something that is a topic that we typically don't cover when we think about innovation, design, creativity. It's about price. So who am I not selling to because I think they can't or won't pay for my product? Who am I not selling to because you've already discounted them out? You don't think they can't or they won't pay for your product. Now, price is king, right? Look, we all go run to Walmart because we can get the best prices. We run to Costco because we can buy it in bulk. It's basically build them cheap, stack them high. It's practically the motto of most segments, particularly in the tech industry. Now, notably, there are some exceptions. It's certainly a core assumption about what the majority of customers want. Now, as an example, back in my days at HP, we built this $320 product, an all-in-one PC, aimed at the middle and lower class Indian families. Now, probably was called Dream Screen. Now, $320 for that segment of the market is a huge amount of money. However, our customers saw the value of the Dream Screen and what it could do to their lives, and particularly the education for their children. Now, price, though, steep makes sense. It never kills an idea because you assume your customers can't afford it. If the value of the product brings to their life, justifies the cost, they will find a way to make the purchase. Now, what's interesting in the case of Dream Screen is, is when you look at the market segments of what parents spend to augment the education of their families, a percentage of disposable income, the largest percentage are Indian families. They spend the most of their disposable income to augment the education of their children. Therefore, by positioning the product not as just a $350 PC, but with a huge amount of value added into it aimed specifically at the education for their children, they're able to justify and rationalize that cost. 
Now, your first concern should be to make it relevant. And your second is you do want to make it affordable. You don't want to be outrageous in pricing and products in these, in these kind of classes of innovations. So remember that in many cases, the customer is not evaluating the perceived worth of your product solely on price, comparing, you know, you know, the costs of your screen or your keyboard or whatever in the case of a PC or a laptop, but they're really evaluating it on value. They ask themselves, what do I get for the money that I spend? Now, if you're getting tripped up and trying to understand if your customer will perceive your product as, quote, expensive, ask yourself if you are confusing price and value as being the same thing. Price and value are not the same thing. If there is sufficient value in the product, the customer will find a way to save for or finance their purchase. People will find a way to pay for things that are important to them, and important is purely subjective. Look at the organic food market. Vegetables that are certified as organic cost an average of 50% more than non-organic. Organic milk and meat are almost twice the price of conventional raised products. Now, everybody benefits from healthy food. But there's still not really what I would call a definitive study showing that an organic head of broccoli is dramatically healthier than a conventionally raised counterpart. Yet millions of people regard the extra cost of organic food as part of the cost of doing business or raising their family. Organic matters to them, and they'll prioritize it, even if it means cutting out other items from their budget. There are other ways to give a customer access to products that are theoretically too expensive for them to purchase. In the last five years of businesses that have allowed women to rent luxury items for monthly fees have become a huge trend. BagBorrowAndSteal.com allows a user to rent a, one of the top designer handbags for $225 a month. At the end of the month, the customer returns the bag and receives a new designer item in its place. Now, some of these bags cost more than $1,500 to buy new. Now, other companies rent designer dresses for roughly 10% of the purchase price. The woman rents it, wears it, returns it a few days later. There are questions here about whether these smaller rental companies are harming the large luxury brands by devaluing the products they rent, or you could argue benefiting them by extending the brand's reach to a new audience. Now, there are good reasons why Gucci, for instance, does not rent their dresses and bags directly to a customer. The person who purchases a dress for several thousand dollars does not want to see it worn by her assistant for a tenth of the price. However, if that assistant then goes out and buys the perfume to go with the rented dress and begins a longer-term relationship with a Gucci or Louis Vuitton, then it becomes ultimately beneficial. Either way, it's an interesting and innovative way to tap into people's desires and provide them with things they need and want and are willing to sacrifice in order to find a way to buy that. So what are the sparking points? Is the expense of your product in some way central to how your customers think or feel about it? Would you benefit from having more people able to afford what you sell? Or does exclusivity magnify your potential customer's desire to buy it? So answer, think about those kinds of questions. So get out your idea notebook, exercise your creative muscle, take the 10 or 15 minutes every day. We talked about this in the past. You gotta exercise that creative muscle. So go ahead, get out there, and try it. So thank you again for listening to this week's show. If you want to stay connected, text the word innovate to 33444. If you're outside the US, visit killerinnovations.com slash innovate. Don't forget to check out killerinnovations.com and also go over to BizTalk Radio and listen to the great shows over there. Uh, I'm Phil McKinney. Don't let your innovation critics get you down. 
keep on innovating. This week's show was engineered by Jeremiah, who always tries to make me sound good and keep me organized. Happening to stay on the clock. That's a new trick I've had to learn being on radio versus being on the podcast. But again, I do appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule. You can always download this show on iTunes. Just search for Killer Innovations over the iTunes store. And we'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Opinions you hear on Biz Talk Radio are those of the hosts, callers, and guests, and do not necessarily reflect those of this station, Biz Talk Radio, its management, or advertisers. The information on Biz Talk Radio does not constitute a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any product or service. If you have any questions about Biz Talk Radio, contact us at 817-274-1609 or at biztalkradio.com. Biz Talk Radio. 